Turn your Bibles to the Johannine Gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1, for a sermon entitled, He Knows. Jesus knows your pain today. He knows your hurt. He knows your disappointment. If you're tired and weary today, just plain worn out. Jesus knows what it feels like to be worn out. If you're wrestling with temptation to sin, Jesus even knows what it means to be tempted, to be told that he can turn the rocks into bread, that he should do it another way, not God's way, an easier way. He knows what it's like to weep at the tomb of a very close friend. He too has had dusty shoes, a dry, thick tongue, thirsty tongue from a long, hard days of work. Did you hear what I said this morning? Jesus knows your pain today. God in Christ is no longer far away. God in Christ is near. God stripped off all of his finery and appeared how embarrassingly naked on the day he was born. God rips off medals of rank and puts aside titles and honor and talents and appears like one of us in his birthday suit. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see hell, the incarnate deity. The incarnation that is when God puts on flesh by becoming Jesus. Things, therefore, heavenly and earthly are gathered into one, into one naked flesh and folds of God. God knows what it's like to start life in this world just like we do, helpless and, and crying. He didn't have a, even have a crib for a bed, but rather an animal's eating trough. Today, it doesn't matter whether you're at home dressed in your bathrobe or here in the sanctuary in Brooks Brothers. God knows who you are. He knows what you've experienced in life, for he himself has experienced exactly the same. God knows your pain because God put on flesh. We want God to know our pain. We want God to be here, to be here with us. Humanity has long craved a God who is tangible, touchable, visible. Think about all the way back to the book of Job. He cried out that although he sought God, he could not see God. Job says in Job 23, Behold, I go forward, but he's not here. I cannot behold him. Philip in the New Testament said the same thing when he said to the rabbi, Lord, show us the Father. It'll be enough. Just show us the Father. 
God had an answer for this universal craving, this craving to see God, to touch God, to know God. It was the incarnation. God puts on flesh when he's born as a babe of Bethlehem. Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has already seen the Father. What he's saying is, Philip, I am God. I am God with flesh on. Before you understand Jesus is a man, however, John wants you to understand Jesus is God. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that he might, we might believe through him. He was not the light but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them he came the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Before you understand Jesus as a man, John wants you to understand Jesus as God. He starts out this magnificent gospel of making sure we realize that Jesus is absolutely, fully God. The opening of this gospel, in the beginning, is an echo of the beginning of the Old Testament scriptures, that Genesis, in the beginning, we hear it as readers of the text, in the beginning. The narrator of Genesis was talking about a new creation, and so is John. In fact, he even uses words that remind us of that creation narrative in Genesis, words like life and light and darkness. It's important for us to know that there was never a time when Jesus, the Word, was not. And there was never anything that existed that did not depend upon the word for Jesus for existence. John wants you to know the antiquity and the eternal nature of Jesus before he becomes a Bethlehem baby. Unlike anything or anyone else, Jesus was not created. Rather, Jesus was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Verses 3 through 5 quickly hurries to make clear that Jesus was the agent of all that God created. All things were made by the Father, but through the Son. 
both the Father and the Son work in chorus together for this creative act of Genesis. The earth and humanity and all that dwells therein are all made by Jesus. The world is due to God himself acting through his word, his son. The universe is not eternal. It is not due to some accident or foolish or inferior being. Rather, the world is God's world created through the son, Jesus. One evening, David Letterman was interviewing the interviewer himself, Larry King. During that interview, Dave asked, if you could interview anybody from human history, who would it be? And I think Larry King surprised David Letterman when he said, Jesus Christ. Letterman was quiet for just a moment, trying to recover for the way the interview was going. And he said, really? What would you ask him if you could interview Jesus? I would ask him, were you really born of a virgin? The answer to that question would determine absolutely everything. For a moment, Dave Letterman, David Letterman was silent, maybe even reverent by his standards. He looked at the camera and said, We'll be right back. We need to know, like Larry King wanted to know, was Jesus really God? Was Jesus really man? And how can this be? After John made a see in the opening here just how eternal and how much at one the Word is with God that is, just as we begin to understand how Jesus is God, none other than God, the Creator, He lets us know in verse 14. Look at that verse. He's not mentioned Jesus at all until now, but all of a sudden, He lets us know who this Word is, this Word that was with God, is God, this Word that created all that is. Here's your clue. The Word became flesh. The Word put on skin, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten, the only Son of the Father, and He was full of grace and truth. Verse 14 is the most concise statement in all of Scripture, the incarnation, the Word, the one who is nothing less than God, we've already been told, became it's punctiliar action. It happened at a point in time. The Word once became flesh in time. God put on skin. It's a crude word here, actually. He doesn't say that the Word became a man. He could have said that. There's a Greek word for that. He doesn't say that the Word put on a body. There's a, a Greek word for that. Rather, he uses a, almost a crude word. The, the word put on flesh. The word put on skin. God became a naked baby and dwelt among us. God knows your pain this morning because he has experienced your pain in Jesus. The word became flesh. The word dwelt here is the word like in the Old Testament. When God dwelt with them, his tent was there with their tent. It was the tabernacle. He pitched his tent with us. 
Jesus became one with us. He cast his lot with us. He dwelt with us. Jesus came down from heaven. He came to our location with our limitations. He got tired and he got sleepy. He worked and he sweated. His feet became sore from walking the streets of Palestine. He was frustrated. He experienced pain. He shed blood. And ultimately, in fact, he knew what it meant to die. Jesus becoming a man. We think about verse 14, we think of him as a man. It forces us to change our ideas about what a man can be. We think about him as God, it forces us to change our ideas about what God is. God with skin on, God in Christ is something this world never ever expected. Something that we will never fully understand. That's really what Christmas is all about, isn't it? The unexpected. Mary, a virgin, never expected to bear a child, and yet she did. And Joseph, her fiancé, knowing he'd never been with her, he didn't expect, he did not expect to become a father, but he did. Herod never expected to be threatened by the announcement of a baby who might replace him as king, but he was. The shepherds out in their field never expected that they themselves, the shepherds, would be frightened by a singing angelic choir in the heavens, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, but they were afraid. And the magi certainly never thought they would find the king in a cave with a feeding trough. But they did. Christmas is about the unexpected. The incarnation, therefore, is something of a disturbance among us. There's a story that circulates for a long time. Whether it's true or not, I cannot possibly verify. But the story circulates that at Trinity College in Cambridge, they had a long tradition of sending their students out to the slums of South London to do community service. They would stay in the evenings at the parish of Camberwell, and at night they would sleep in the parish hall, and, well, during the day they would go out into the slums and do benevolent work for the poor people in the area. Decades ago, as the story goes, one such student was helping a woman do some repairs. He was cleaning out the drain of her kitchen sink, and the woman asked him, Young man, has anyone ever told you you look like Prince Charles? Since indeed no one had ever said that he looked like Prince Charles, he said, No man. Well, I'm surprised, even with my dimming old eyes, you, you are a spitting image of the prince himself. Well, he answered truthfully because no one had ever said he looked like Prince Charles because he was, in fact, Prince Charles. The lady never knew that her drains were cleaned by the heir to the throne of England. It was to be to her, she never imagined that it could be. It would be inconceivable that the prince would be in such a down-to-earth situation in an old woman's kitchen. It was inconceivable that she herself would be visited by the one day now king. There's a mysterious, 
down-to-earthness about Jesus' birth that we can't quite come to terms with. We try to transform it with architecture and music and art because we can't come to terms with the crudeness of it, this incarnation. We try to gloss over its reality, the reality of a stable You hear the story that God was born of a woman, that there was no room for them in the inn. He was placed in a common feeding trough. The stark animal smell. The everyday reality about the scene. The scene where God puts on flesh. I'm telling you this morning that God knows your pain. He knows your hurt and your suffering and your weariness, your humiliation. He knows because he came to be one with us. He put up his tent right beside our tent. As Michael Card says, the implications of the name Emmanuel, that is God with us, are both comforting and unsettling. Comforting because he's come to share in our danger and our drudgery in our everyday lives. He comes to weep with us and yet to wipe away our tears. The implications are also unsettling because as long as God is far off, the old caricature, a man with a beard, it's safe to talk to him. But now that he's right here with us, among us, he wept and he laughed and he fasted and he feasted and he was fully present with those that he loved. He was there with them, and now he's here with us. The Word, John tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with skin on. God didn't remain in the safe headquarters of heaven, receiving reports of the world's suffering from below and shouting a few encouraging words down to us at a safe distance. No, he left heaven and came down to us in the frontline trenches right down to where we live, to where you live and to where I live. He came down to where he had worries about life, where we contend with our anxieties, our feelings of emptiness and futility and frustration and sin and suffering And where we must finally die as he died. Theologian Helmut Thickleke has said, There is nothing that he has not endured with us. There is nothing that he has not endured with us. He understands, says a theologian, everything. God put up his tent with us. Joseph Bailey wrote a song, Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you were real, a real man. And before that, a real boy, and it hurt when you were planing wood and you got a splendor under your nail. You felt it when you got a stone stuck in your sandal and you had to shake it out. And you removed the sand from beneath, between your toes, and slept on hard ground on cold nights, dreaming of foxes who had warm holes. You got hungry, thirsty, tired, bone tired, 
tired of crowds, tired because you had to walk too far, you died. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you were real, real God, and you healed people's hurts. You even raised the dead. You said, come to me if you're tired, and I will give you rest. You fed the hungry crowds and said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. You rose from deadness into bringing life, bringing life. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are real, real God, man. I worship you. I adore you because you bore my sins. You know what it's like to have a splinter under your nail and to die. Because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we can say with certainty that we have a Savior who knows our sorrows. He knows it all. He knows what it feels like to be disappointed. He knows what it feels like to be misunderstood. He knows what it feels like to be mistreated. He knows what it feels like to be weary and fatigued and thirsty. He knows what it feels like to catch a summer cold. He knows what it means to be abandoned by those that you think will be loyal to you forever. He knows what it means to be the brunt end of brutal gossip. He knows what it feels like to be weary from a sleepless night and to hope that something won't happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows the scorch of the sun and the burn of the wind. He knows it all. He even knows. He's been there at the weeping and wailing of the wake of a dead child. Jesus has been there and done that. Whatever you've gone through, he has come to suffer with us. He has come to sorrow with us. He has come to bear our burdens. One writer powerfully described that Jesus became a human being because God, the compassionate one, could not suffer and lacked the back to be beaten. God needed a back like ours to be crucified and beaten. He needed a, a flesh and bone to receive the blows, to perform compassion and preach it. He had to become a man in order to die for man. He had to become human to bear human sin, your sin and my sin. That's the power of a God with skin on. There's something true in, in John's day when he writes this. It's true in our day. In verse 10 it says, He was in the world, and the way the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even those who believe in his name were born not of flesh and blood or the will of man, but of God. Even as the Christ comes as a Bethlehem baby, the world rejects him. It says he came into his own. The, the Greek word there is a word later used as gospel when when it says that John, the writer, took Mary into his own home, so his own or home, he translate either way, God came home. He came to Israel, his own people, and they did not receive him. 
It would been one thing if he'd gone to people that we wouldn't expect would receive him, but he came to his own people. He came home, and they did not receive him. What about us? We're just weeks away. He'll come into his own again to the church. Will we receive him? Are we ready for his presence? Are we ready for the word to become flesh? For God to interrupt history? For God to put on skin? In Christ, God comes home. The story of a housewife who came to the point where she just couldn't wash another dish or change another diaper. She probably had a husband like yours. <laughs> You've heard those stories. He, she hit the wall. She just took off, didn't tell anybody where she was going. That night she called her husband and he was frantic. He yelled at her, where are you and why did you leave? She asked about the children and she hung up. She called a few nights later and the husband realized he better be calm this time. And so again, she asked about the children and he said, honey, we miss you. I love you and we want you to come home. She just silently and quickly put the receiver down. They were in that rhythm. She would call about every other day, and she would ask about the kids and find out they're okay, and then he would tell her, I love you, and I want you to come home. And again, she would gently and quickly put down the receiver. And finally, when he was at his wits end, he took the family savings and hired a private detective to find his missing wife and found out pretty easily that she was traced to Des Moines, Iowa. He left the children with his in-laws. He rented a car and drove to the city where she was staying. It was a seedy little hotel. He had rehearsed a speech, the speech to win her back, to bring her home back to the family. He knocked on the door and she opened it and he forgot the whole speech and just grabbed her and hugged her and said, Let's go home. He didn't say anything for a few nights. But one night after the children had been put to bed, the young husband finally had to know the answer to his question. Every time you called, I told you I loved you and I wanted you to come home. Why didn't you return? Why? She replied, all those times, it was only words. And then you came. All the other times with God, it was only words. The words of the prophet Isaiah, the words of the prophet Jeremiah, the words of the prophet Hosea or Amos, all those times, it was only words. But finally, in the final word of Jesus, he came. He put on flesh, body, 
and bones to be broken, to die. When God puts on flesh, it makes all the difference in the world. Do you feel at home, home with a God who knows your pain, a God, a creator who did the unthinkable? He put on flesh and pitched his tent right beside yours. Let us pray. Oh, God, maybe there's someone here this morning who now understands Christmas in a new way. Maybe understanding what it means for God to do the unthinkable. For God to put on skin. Maybe there's someone watching by way of television. This is her day to say yes to Jesus as Lord. To know that whatever she's going through, that Jesus has been through the same He didn't stay a safe distance away. He was lonely and tired and thirsty and had a pierced brow. Maybe there's those who've been worshiping with us and this is their day to come and be a part of this fellowship that worships the eternal, creating, incarnate God in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.